0: Welcome to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast. You can find us online at FeministCoffeeHour.com, on Twitter at FemCoffeePod, or you can send us an email to FeministCoffeeHour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And today we have a very special guest. Would you like to
1: introduce yourself? I'm Kate Devlin, hi.
2: So Dr. Devlin uh, has written a a book that we were both really excited to read called Turned On, Science, Sex and Robots, uh, about sex robots, which we've talked about at length on various episodes of this show. People have really strong feelings about them. And after reading this book, there's a lot of complexity to it beyond just what we've talked about clearly. Um, well, first, I just want to start out by like highly recommending this book if this has been an interesting topic for you. And if you like our show, I think you also kind of appreciate this nuanced deep dive stuff on a titillating topic. <laughs> how did you kind of get into research on sex robots?
1: Yeah, it's quite a niche area. I was looking at artificial intelligence. My research more broadly is about how society interacts with, reacts to technological change, uh, how we can predict what might happen with emerging tech. And at the time I was working on cognitive systems, how do we build machines that can feel or think? There's a lot of talk around what attributes we should give robots. For example, should they feel pain? Because pain is a very useful tool to know that something is being damaged. Should we provide robots that could care? If that was possible, would we want to do that? And a group of us just in the bar after a conference were talking about sex and saying, you know, what What does that influence, does that have on our own cognition? How do we behave as humans when we're aroused? How does that change the way we interact with each other, the way we think? And yeah, we started looking into it and it just seemed like an incredibly interesting topic. I'm by no means the first person to look at this. There have been people researching this for years and... Probably the earlier one that that people know of is is David Levy, who wrote a book called Love and Sex with Robots back in 2007. It hadn't really been discussed mainstream since then. So it was nice to be able to go and have a look at what had happened since then in, in, in the proceedings. Around the same time that I was writing my book, there was also an academic book that came out with a collection of academic papers on this topic, which was really good to see. So it's being treated much more academically now as well.
2: That's so exciting to me as an academic. <laughs> I think it brings together so many fields the way that artificial intelligence brings together so many fields. And so I'm in psychology. Elizabeth's background is in
1: psychology as well. so A little bit. just undergrad. <laughs> yeah, and there's so much of that that, that feeds in, I think. Um, it was any interaction with technology. It's just fascinating to, to tell what makes us human and how does it affect the way we behave and how does it change the way we behave. So psychology is definitely a huge part of that.
2: And it also kind of brings to the fore how little we know about human
1: relationships and how little we know about people. We know very little about humans. And I think the more that we look into things like artificial intelligence and robotics, we realize, you know, why are we trying to make artificial intelligence when we don't really quite know how humans work? But it's a fascinating journey to learn about that as well. I think one of the interesting things about the book was just reading it and learning
0: more about kind of the approach that we took when we were thinking about sex robots was the difference between a sex machine and a sex robot because one of the things we were saying was what's the difference between this and a vibrator or a thrusting machine and you know you very clearly explained what a robot is could you speak to that
1: it's a very hard thing to pin down because the robotics community doesn't actually agree on a single definition but the iso standard is that you've got a machine that can be programmed to behave independently, autonomously in some way, generally programmed by a computer that has movements that can sort of carry out a particular task. When we think of robots, we do tend to think quite often of the sort of sci-fi humanoid or human-like android or gynoid style. But actually, there are robots all around us today, and those are things like factory production lines or self-driving cars or robot vacuum cleaners we don't even accept robots as being robots half the time so I think the difference there is that you know we've got the sex toys which tend to be either almost like body parts really they're smaller they're not embodied really or you know things like yeah sex machines the fucking machines which are just mechanical there's not a kind of programmed intelligence in there at all so yeah there's there's the difference but Specifically, the sex robots that are being developed and prototyped today tend to take the form of the, the female body. Right, which you described as a, a gynoid
2: as opposed gynoid, to an android. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. That was a, a really interesting clarification for me as, as well. I just assumed an, Android was the mankind of, <laughs> <laughs> of uh, yeah. the robot world. So Android is
1: not universal, Android
2: is only for male type
1: yeah I mean I'm quite sure people will use it collectively but I mean that's another one of those things that that annoys me so much is when people say man and machine they're like why do you just mean why do you say man and machine it's humans and machine in
2: 2016 I think our fifth episode was about the sex box we were reacting to an article by Milo Yiannopoulos at that point that had basically said that women need to become more docile and like how a robot would be programmed to become if we didn't want to be replaced by gynoids. (laughs) Although I don't think he used the word gynoid.
1: Yeah, I I wouldn't wouldn't listen to anything Milo says. (laughs) Right, of course
2: not. But there are people who do. And so sometimes I feel like his articles can be particularly fun to debunk or just to spark actual conversation about whatever he's blathering about. But we had kind of ended it because the men's rights weirdo right wing argument is that robots can't replace men because what women want. And this is all super heteronormative, which is so funny because I think sex is one of the queerest spaces in any kind of human interaction. But anyway, um, that men couldn't be replaced because what women want from men is the ability to earn money and sperm. Yeah. But (laughs) we had kind of ended that assembly line robots already exist that can do menial labor, that can earn money, that you can then spend at the
1: sperm bank. And in fact, it looks like increasingly, like if this fourth industrial revolution happens and automation occurs, it is going to be men who lose jobs and, and there's still going to be a phenomenal need for human care workers, most of which are women. So women are going to benefit from from the automation uh, at the end of the day.
2: Yeah, I mean, if anyone gets paid for care work.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's well, it's uh, yeah, the whole other thing of um, effective and emotional labor. So yeah.
2: <laughs> right. And I think that kind of dichotomy also plays into the fear on the other side of the political spectrum that women's or what we tend to associate with women's labor is so devalued that if we can have a robot do it we can actually just get rid of women because there's no point to them (laughs) and I think that that kind of feeds that fear that if you get rid of men's jobs there will be a crisis for men in terms of like how do men kind of maintain their families but if you get rid of women's jobs literally we can just throw them in the trash. (laughs) (laughs)
1: quite willing to put money on that not being the case if it actually happened
2: (laughs) so you discuss affective responses and the potential for affective reading of people using um instead of like facial feature sensors more using like data from location and social media and biometrics like heart rate like you might have on your smartwatch
1: yeah i mean we've got so many potential sources of information about people's activities and I mean so many people are wearing smart watches or health trackers I mean I've got my Fitbit practically welded to my wrist uh, you know you kind of got all this data uh, and I think that with the increase in s- facial recognition as well and, and analysis of um, facial expressions you've also got that aspect too so I think there's a huge amount of information that can be gleaned about a user that can then be used to drive a response from the computer and Give us what we want, really, in terms of a response. Give us an emotional response. And you know, there's lots of talk about. Well, you know, does that mean anything if the machine can't really feel? And of course, you know, it doesn't have to be reciprocated. We can still respond. We still project onto these these machines. You know, even if it's just a laptop or a, mo- a smartphone. You know, you kind of get a rate with it, or you are happy with it, or you know, you're you're in our all of our interactions are very much happening in a social space because we're social creatures so i think there's definitely a new form of social interaction that's taking place now where we're learning how to negotiate a world that's increasingly full of machines
2: what i think might be really curious about that would be kind of as a psychologist just kind of the theory of how we experience emotions ourselves Will these robots kind of understand what we're feeling before we understand for ourselves through physiological data, especially when it comes to arousal? There's always been kind of that issue in research around arousal that there's physiological arousal sometimes without awareness or psychological arousal and vice versa.
1: Yeah, and it was really interesting reading up on all the literature around arousal because there's some different models and it wasn't an area I would really worked on before. So I, I find that absolutely fascinating, just sort of the hormones that are going on there, you know, the things that are kicking off in the brain. I find that fascinating. And yeah, I guess the way that machine learning is advancing at the moment, it's very possible that we can use that to detect patterns in our behavior that we wouldn't be able to pick out with the human eye we wouldn't be able to say it depends can the machine actually understand that no not necessarily but it could definitely identify it given the right amount of data so i think that is really really interesting yeah i wonder
2: if that would be something that people would experience as creepy
1: like super creepy
2: <laughs> or like unsettling
1: <laughs> yeah i think quite a lot of ai is quite unsettling and a lot of the machine learning i mean i find it if i'm very much a tech optimist in that i think technology definitely has the potential to be used for really beneficial things but with machine learning we're collecting so much data on people and we're not doing it in a particularly careful way a lot of the time and it is frightening the, the mind of leaps and judgments that can be made with that data that aren't necessarily either right or morally good so I think it's really difficult so yeah it's it's a tricky area
2: that's why we need more female designers and queer designers at this time yeah
1: yeah (laughs) like when
2: we're making the zeitgeist you know (laughs) yeah could that biometric
0: information that a piece of technology could pick up from a human being. Do you think that we're going to have maybe, like I say, a vibrator that can pick up on a person's heartbeat and like respond in that way, rather than having the person have to switch the setting themselves
1: yeah, Before we have
0: like an android or a gynoid that can do that?
1: Absolutely. I think we could do that. And I think people are developing things, not that specifically, but along those lines. So we've had smart sex toys around for quite a while. It started off the this idea of teledildonics, this idea of toys that can be controlled remotely via the internet. has been around for so long. And it's only recently that we see more money going into that, more development in it. And there's some really cool stuff out there. And um, I think that, yeah, we could see that. And I've run two sex tech hackathons now where we brought people in together, not just tech developers, but psychologists, musicians, artists, material scientists, and industry experts. And we got everyone in a room for 24 hours and got them to prototype new forms of sex technology. And that was just amazing it was you know it was so far removed from the sort of things that we see you know they were coming up with soft robotics with tubes that could go around your body and inflate and squeeze you with peacock's tails that were driven by vaginal moisture with you know all sorts of really cool stuff prosthetics everything and vibrators that were triggered by bass lines in music or by hand gestures so I think we've got so many cool things that we can do there
2: also, telodildonics is probably one of my favorite words in the English language.
1: <laughs> it's a fantastic word.
0: <laughs> I had an, uh, another question, too, what Karen was saying about the people who are making these things. Is the gender split more men in the, the field of sex robots in terms of both research and creating them? Or And
1: yeah. why do you think that is? Yeah, it definitely is. And I think what... What the newspapers portray as being sort of the future of sex robots and what the reality is are so far removed because to read the tabloid stories, you would think that this is like a massive industry and it's not. It's incredibly small. It's incredibly niche. There are literally a handful of workshops worldwide working on this. So, you know, a couple in the US, a couple in China. It comes out mostly of the sex doll industry, which is again there are women working in that, but they tend to be catering to very much uh, the market for straight men. And because it's just a step on from this, it's just adding some kind of interactivity to these sex dolls. Then you're seeing the same things happening, and so you're ending up with a a, you know a a essentially a doll with a little bit of animatronics or a little bit of mechanisation and an AI chatbot integrated into it. So by contrast, the sex toy market is definitely a lot more women involved at a higher level. But I think the sex robots, I think it's really a microcosm of tech in general, in that developers tend to be these straight white men with the default assumption that the target market will also be straight white men. And I think that holds right across so many different types of technologies that we're seeing nothing new here.
2: Uh, You drew the parallel in your book about the size of smartphones
1: and the hand size differences
2: between men and women, typically.
1: Yeah, it's things like that. You know, there's like sort of 17 millimeter difference between the average size of a man's hand, the average size of a woman's hand. And we see it with so many different types of tech. I mean, Apple released their health tracker without a menstrual tracking ability in the first wave. And you just think but. how did you miss out that 51% of the world <laughs> might, you know, be interested in this? It's just, it's incredible that this default assumption exists. Even from a marketing perspective, you'd think they would be more wise to catering for a, a better market. And it's interesting because when I wrote the book, I was getting some really positive comments on it, with the exception of things like Amazon reviews, which is just a bunch of men telling me at great length how I'm just one of those terrible lefty feminist types who just doesn't understand, you know, that that it's persecuting the men. And I just think, yeah, but you've had it, you know, gone your way for so long. Was
0: there something specific in the book they were taking offense to? I, um, I or they think just made the, an assumption that it was going to be bad. Or?
1: I think it's just generally because I do mention that tech is very much dominated. You know, it's a male-dominated field, and that uh, that's unfair. And you know, I think there's some people get very threatened by that. Men have
2: very emotional responses to certain facts. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, that a
1: Gillette <laughs> advert. <laughs>
2: What's funny about this is that it really does seem to be really evocative on both ends of ideas about women's role in society and men's roles in society. So the second time, the time we had come back to Sexbots was kind of, do you remember the name of the organization, Elizabeth? The Campaign Against Sex Robots. Right, right, exactly, yes. So we had kind of just stumbled upon their website, uh, and the claims that they're making from this kind of ostensibly feminist s- viewpoint that it would increase sexual violence towards women, prostitution, which they seem to interpret as inherently sexually
1: violent towards women, uh, and child molestation or child sexual predation. Yeah, it all gets sort of lumped in together. I mean, I, I understand some of the concerns of the campaign against sex robots in that, you know, I, I agree that it's not, beneficial or useful to have a reductive female stereotype of a doll it's you know especially when we've got so many other issues around body image of women in the media and music and and film yeah they come at it from a very different stance to me so they're profoundly negative about sex work they initially said that they wanted to ban sex robots and then they said no actually we don't we you know we, we just want ethical development and everyone else said well so do we they've doubled down again since then and said no we want a ban on sex robots, sex work, um, porn, they come from a very different place than I do. And I had to do a lot of sort of soul searching about whether or not I was willing to sort of put everything down in the book about what my own personal views were on it. But I figured I couldn't write the book without sort of saying what my stance was. And I'm, I'm a pro-sex feminist. And I think that whether or not people agree with sex work and they clearly don't, it's still something that needs to be a safe environment for, for the people who are working in it. I looked into it in great detail about whether or not there would be a knock-on effect of sexual violence. And I could not find any evidence for that. And that was really interesting because when I spoke to the people who are likely the target market, which is the doll owners, the current doll owners, they are so respectful. Like Almost all those doll owners treat their dolls incredibly well, cherish them, see them as treasured objects. I mean, nuts in itself may be something that is problematic, but there is no threat of violence there and they're not damaging these dolls in any way there's no inaction of violence that anyone is really noticed. And certainly when I asked about you know do you get dolls sent back for repairs that are damaged they said it's very very rare that they would be inflicted deliberately inflicted damage it tends to be sort of wear and tear and I think if we look at the sort of parallels there with computer video games where there was concern that it would spill into real life violence if If people were playing violent games, that just hasn't happened. And there's sort of evidence from both sides trying to say, yeah, maybe it does. And there's others saying, yeah, maybe it doesn't. But there's no conclusive one line that you can say, yeah, we know it happens, and we know it doesn't. So I think we don't have the evidence for that with sex robots as well. And to be honest, it's such a tiny, tiny fraction of all the problems that are going out there in the world that I think it's not even, we don't even have a sex robot. That has been completed and sent to the owner yet. I mean, we're still they're still at the stage where they're just building these things.
2: That was the other mistake that we had made in our episode is that we had assumed that they were already out. The media
1: seems to present it as if it's a a done thing, and yet it's, it's just not. <laughs> it's, I was amazed but I thought there were far more out there before I started looking into it. in that it's also
2: kind of curious to describe that kind of like positive sexism of the the cherishing
1: and kind of idealizing of the robots you know there's very clearly something else going on there and i find that the two sorts of groups of people who were interested in this are the people who are looking for companionship where sex is very much a secondary part of that. And there are doll owners who own the dolls because they want the companionship. There are those who own them just to pose them and photograph them. There are those who like them as works of art. And there are fetishists who like them because they are dolls, who want the robot because it is a robot, because it is a programmable woman. And these are all different aspects to it. So there's no sort of one reason why someone will do it. And I think when it comes to things that are, you know, sex doll brothels and things like this that have been cropping up and I again, I think there's also a novelty value there as well, is that whole capitalizing on oh this sounds fun and risky and new, and I think there's that aspect too. The idealization of women versus the dominance of women, there's two things going on there, right you know. Yeah,
2: still sort of like this projection onto women or femininity rather than this expectation of agency.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: I'm not fully pacified by that, but <laughs> <laughs> but I'm very agnostic in terms of my own personal stance towards these. I'm kind of like Yeah, whatever. I think the problem is society rather than the technology that society builds. And I do think that they can serve to kind of amplify one another when, as we mentioned, like the the architects of this technology are straight men for straight men. And that's, I think, part of why we see the really absurdly dimensioned real dolls and like
1: really inhuman looking humanoids. Yeah, I was looking at that and then sort of looking at things like um, Pornhub stats that they released all the time and it's really interesting you know the expectation that people and in particular men there's an expectation that they want to have this kind of unfeasibly large-breasted guinea women with long one hair and you know fake looking sort of you know, barbie-esque things Yeah, that's what's shaping the the shape literally of these dolls and yet at the same time when you look at sort of the stats that Pornhub have released for the past, you know, several years. That's not reflected in what people are actually searching for, which is very interesting as well. So there's been an increase in certain things like um, there's a lot of anime, which you know is the whole other issue. It's not this sort of stereotypical thing that they're looking for, and it's very very different. There's a lot of amateur interest, is you know, interest in amateur porn as well. So it's not just going for the stereotype. So I wonder just how much of it is there any market research has gone into any of this, you know? So. It's interesting, I think there's a lot of assumptions about what men want, assumptions that women won't want things, and we're just seeing that happen again and again.
2: And so I guess that kind of brings me back to this idea that that kind of sex is a very queer space, you know, there's very few sexual interactions that can only be done by monogamous heterosexual person with a penis and person with a vagina,
1: you know? <laughs> Yeah, and I I find that really the assumption that everyone seems to make quite a lot of the time when writing about this is that it will be penis vagina heteronormative sex that's it and someone has an orgasm probably the guy and that's it and you think really that's (laughs) that's what you're going with is your definition for sex that's what and the amount of people when writing about this treating it as something very sacred treating sex as something really sacred and that it's an important and an intense moment that must be shared by two people and must be reciprocated you know I'm thinking really because you know yeah that's part of it but it's not everything and there are so many people out there having sex in so many different ways with so many combinations of people or on their own and that seems to be frowned upon to explore that when you're sort of taking a philosophical stance on this there is this assumption that it just follows a very heteronormative pattern
2: well sex has that kind of weird status of being taboo private awesome, terrible, like yeah. <laughs> shameful, but the ultimate expression of love to the person that you cherish the most, yes. like this really great mix of being something people don't want to explore explicitly other than in these weird squirrely ways.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's so difficult, I think, in academia to discuss sex as, as something that is a pleasurable activity it's a right rather than something that we have to look at for health reasons or for psychological reasons or biological reasons and that's been incredibly hard and I've been very lucky to work places that are kind of on board with looking at it from a different angle because I think Certainly the funding bodies, when you applied for research funding for this kind of thing, they want to know what the health benefits are. They want to know what the psychological well-being benefits are. Like, well, maybe just people want to get off. You know, like, <laughs> there, are, there are other reasons to look at this. And that it's so fundamentally human. We can't overlook something so fundamentally human. So I do want to
2: touch on, and I thought you addressed this really well in your book, the concept of sex robots that might look like children and so we we already have these kind of the compact real dolls that don't quite look like children but are kind of disturbing it's
1: a really tricky area because your initial reaction is to go oh that's 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 horrible that's not right and I find that probably one of the most difficult bits to look into that and the incels that was horrible as well but um, I think with with the childlike Sex dolls. There are small versions of sex dolls, but they're very clearly anatomically adult in that they will have breasts. They will be the shape of a if an adult, uh, usually an adult female. But there are childlike sex dolls that resemble children that have been sold. And the UK had a crackdown on this, and they seized over a hundred of them at customs at different times in the past year and a half. And they prosecuted seven men for importing these. There's no law in the UK against ownership of them, just importation of an obscene item. And I think Canada recently had a case as well where this was going on where someone had, had tried to import one as well. And of the seven men that they prosecuted on six, there were images of child abuse on their home computers. So you know these were these were paedophiles who were actively viewing the images. The worry is that someone will make a childlike version that is animated in some way, that is animatronics, that will be a childlike sex robot. There's a theory that perhaps if the paedophiles had access to a childlike robot, that might negate the need to offend in real life. And there are others who say very strongly and clearly that that is a terrible idea, that it will lead to an escalation of abuse and that it just can't be allowed to happen. There are studies from the University of Montreal that used virtual reality to see whether or not sex offenders have been rehabilitated. So you can put someone who has been treated for sexual offences, put them in an environment where they face potential arousal, and check whether or not they are aroused. And of course, you could say, well, what happens if you do that with a robot? Perhaps that's a way of monitoring uh, whether or not someone is rehabilitated as well. Although interestingly, the people who carried out that study have have argued against doing that with actual robots again there's no evidence base here because you couldn't even begin to get ethical clearance to run a study on this it's just impossible and there's been some really good thorough debates around it john danaher who is one of the editors of a book called robot sex has looked into this in great detail and he's got some very good um, work on that you know after reflecting this my own thoughts are well this mirrors a real life situation where there are vulnerable people involved so with a sex robot that resembles an adult or an adult woman that resembles a real-life, perhaps a real-life relationship where two consenting adults are having sex. With a, a childlike robot, you don't have that at all. It's, it's one of the groups is a vulnerable group. Therefore, I think for that reason, and because we don't know, and because vulnerable minors are could be at risk, that's why we have to make the case to keep an eye on this, to regulate in some way. So I, I think there's also a basis for this that in many countries, it's illegal to make virtual representations or computer generated images of these of this as well. So, you know, that it kind of could follow on that you then prevent people from doing that with the, with the action. Uh,
2: Anyone or just children?
1: specifically just children just children specifically yeah
2: i'm not a forensic psychologist but what a what a fantastic idea of what rehabilitation is uh, the lack of physiological arousal
1: <laughs> I know, <it's> like, <laughs> again you know it's such a difficult area to work in as well because of the might of ethical risk involved there are people that are continuing to look into this it's not an, an area that i'm i'm studying but i know other people are and i'd be really interested to follow it to see what happens
2: yeah, I would say that was definitely the, the hardest part of the book for me to get through kind of in terms of internal turmoil.
1: I don't want to make non-evidenced judgments on this because, you know, but John, I'm a scientist. I want to look at what's out there. At the same time, the emotive aspects of that are huge and the default reaction is to be horrified at the very idea. And if I thought there was a possibility of benefit from this in that some way, it could be a useful thing. Then obviously I want to be able to give that a chance, but we don't know. And so we have to be cautious.
2: Yeah, I find that argument to be unlikely, just considering, you know, finding people with pornographic images and the association between that and offending. So I actually don't know what that is, but I'm immediately just assuming. (laughs) So take that with not even a grain of salt, just throw that argument out for our listeners.
1: (laughs) But yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of people who have pedophilic tendencies who never act on them and offend. Who will, you know, stop at imi- you know, looking at images, and even then, that's damaging because there are children involved in the creation of those images. So, you know, would it be fair to, for them to have computer-generated images that no children have been involved in the making of this? And you know, automatically, I want to go, oh, that's horrible. That's you know, that's that's grim. But at the same time, you know, what is the harm part? What is the bit where we have to be careful? And it's just a, it's a minefield of picking through that.
2: So, I am curious though, I'm, I'm going to kind of question the statement that you made that there are a lot of people with pedophilic tendencies who don't act on it in any way. Where does that come from?
1: No, act on it in that they will access images, which, if it is photographs or video, then there are, people, there are children being hurt. So, there's that aspect. But who don't offend against children in the physical, in their physical lives. In the lives.
2: physical sense, yeah.
1: Okay. I am mean, not really clear, yeah.
0: So this is kind of, a, I guess, a conspiracy theory of my own making, sort of, that I thought of after the last time we talked about sex bots. We're talking about the campaign against sex robots and how they're kind of like a, almost a mirror image of, you know, the men's rights people and saying, you know, watch out, women, you're going to be replaced by sex bots. And then campaign against sex robots is almost saying a similar thing. I started thinking about how vitriolic these arguments are, and it, it reminded me of something else that I've been reading about in, in a similar topic of artificial intelligence. And um, if this is too off the wall to address, just let me know, you don't, you don't, have, to, you don't have to comment, but I'm sure you've heard of Eliezer Yudkowsky and the um, Machine Intelligence Research Institute, and the idea that one of the top threats to humanity is evil AI. Uh, and yeah. so we should throw <laughs> as mu- we should throw as much money as possible toward developing friendly and ethical AI.
2: That's how you get the evil AI, sorry. <laughs> I've seen this movie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think it's hilarious. I think it's ridiculous. Well, I mean, I don't really know. It. I'm more from a public policy background, but the idea seems absurd to me as someone who doesn't know anything about the technical side of artificial intelligence but does does know a little bit about public policy it just seems like an absurd propos- proposition that this is what to the government should or nonprofit should be spending money on. So my question is, have you ever heard of people from this line of thinking being against sex robots for that reason?
1: Kind of. It's interesting because a lot of my work is on AI ethics and there have been so many people going, big name figures saying, oh, the next great threat to humanity is artificial intelligence going super intelligent and killing us all. Um, most of us working in that space are going that's not the threat. The threat is that we're developing AI, machine learning, with incredible amounts of bias that's damaging to society and that is marginalizing groups and that is creating many, many problems that have nothing to do with superintelligence. So we do need that ethical development, but we need it not to teach machines ethics but to put our own ethics into place as we develop but yeah i kind of heard that along the lines of you know this the sex robots will kill us all (laughs) sort of thing you know they will rise up and they will take over and they won't you know we won't be needed anymore but i've not heard it in a particularly serious way just as a kind of an aside to that
0: i was just thinking of it because you know you you hear people talk about how um the sex industry and the porn industry have driven many advances in technology like VCR and Blu-ray yeah, yeah. And, and things like that. So I was like, well, it's possible that you know, sex robots might drive some of the research into AI. And if that's it's true, the people who are most against AI might be against sex robots for that <laughs> that reason. It's
1: interesting, because um, porn has become more of a consumer of technology than a driver of it these days. So they're not doing the advances that we saw initially from porn going online. They're doing much more in the area of marketing than than they are in the driving forward technology. It's interesting. Again, there's this idea, I think, that there's research going into these sex robots when there's not. It's just a few people tweaking some sex dolls and adding some bits and pieces. And I do wonder sometimes, do people think there's like corporate backing for this? Because there's none. There's, There's nothing there. It's really so small scale as to be almost unseeable almost invisible on the world stage and it doesn't mean it's not an interesting topic it doesn't mean it's something that we shouldn't talk about because I think it raises so many fascinating questions and there are other forms of technology but I think yeah it's definitely not any kind of driving force in innovation
0: Okay, thank you for answering my question. My conspiracy theory has been debunked. Thank
1: goodness. I mean, I don't know what Facebook and Google are working on. So, yeah. You know. Facebook
2: and Google probably have had some sort of bizarre algorithm that they are sure is what turns us on, that is like definitely. The last porn you looked at being sold to you
1: 50 times, even though you've already bought it. (laughs) That is interesting. Yeah, probably. (laughs) That is interesting because some of the porn sites are now using machine learning to categorize their material and also to be able to deliver tailor-made playlists for people. So I'm kind of intrigued about what's happening in that space at the moment. Yeah, I think
2: also just like as a reality check, like when you look at kind of these neural networks and what they can identify in images, like it's really not the way these ideas loom in our imagination. But I think that a lot of people do feel like higher quality AI is an inevitability. And so it's still worth thinking about, even though we're nowhere near Or I don't know what the timeline is on these kinds of paradigms, but like, we're not there yet.
1: No, everyone likes to say, oh, 50 years, 50 years. And then 50 years down the line, they'll say, oh, it's another 50 years. They just keep saying that.
2: Yeah. There's so much fun sci-fi that you can kind of write in your mind. I think also I want to touch on how this fantasy of what sex spots will look like versus what you've kind of described in your hackathons, what people have come up with. Was really really fascinating. So how it had loomed in my mind was like this hyper pornified gynoid that is for a man with a penis to ejaculate into however he sees. Face. And so can you describe some of the, the kinds of sex robots that have come out of your hackathons?
1: Yeah, so we didn't concentrate on, well, we didn't specify robots, but we did say, in the first one we said, you know, take the idea of the sex toy and just do, you know, whatever you think it, on this theme of should taboo stifle intimacy. And there was so many different things. There was how to get around porn filters because very draconian porn laws that have just come in in the UK. So people say, you know, how can we subvert this with some software? We had... um One group who made a a sexual cryptocurrency where you had to you had to stroke and stimulate a real world leather wallet to generate this sex coin. (laughs) And the idea was that you could either put all your effort into money or you could put all your effort into giving your attention to humans. But you couldn't do both. You had to make a choice. Um, So there's some really cool stuff going on. And then the second hackathon that we ran, it was looking towards more embodied experiences. So it was saying, you know, not just sex, but intimacy and sensuality and what happens when we, you know, take it away from just an object and make it something of more of an experience. So we had people doing VR so that a VR sex or was it a game where you had to you know sort of wearing a VR controller on your belt and you're kind of you know having sex with this robot which is hilarious for everyone looking on who of couldn't course. see what you're actually doing but they were also uh, the winning group um created a shawl that had sensors in it that you could wrap around you and the idea was that if you were in an augmented reality scenario where you could perhaps see rose petals falling from the ceiling then that would trigger the sensors which would make it feel as if they were touching your skin. And you yeah, know, another group had I found myself lying on a, a sleeping bag across some chairs while they wrapped plastic tubes around me, like inflatable plastic tubes, which they then a little motor inflated and I was being squeezed by these tubes to give the idea of being hugged and held. So there was just really cool stuff. And I kind of, you know, when people say, What's your ideal sex robot like? I'm thinking, well, you know, I like the idea of something like a quilt that I can wrap around me that will squeeze me and purr, and that I can stroke and it will respond. That sounds like a cat. I don't mean a cat. <laughs> but, you, know, uh, you, know, you know, like pressing growls at me. Perhaps you know, it's it's perhaps it vibrates. A sexy perhaps human purr. Yeah, yeah, human purr uh, or machine purr. I don't know, but uh, I mean, you know, it's something that and you know, other people have said. You know, what if you had one that you know its face was a screen, so you could put on whatever face you wanted. What if you had Something like a, a, a cocoon you could get inside, and it was, you know, this sort of feeling of being held or caressed. So many different things, and, you know, that evolve lots of different senses and lots of different materials, things that could be controlled by others, things that you could control yourself, so many different things. And I think that's starting to happen a lot more. We're seeing more and more interesting toys out there and i really want to see more done on the intimacy side of it and the companionship side of it because speaking to the sex doll owners so many of them they're really interested in the companionship aspect and that's a big big thing for them and it's to get that feeling of having someone there which i think the ai and these sex robots that are being developed can deliver that in conversational terms so you know what else can we do to make someone feel as if they're being held or they are being comforted or whatever that that kind of thing
2: and I know we're near the end, but uh, I do want to kind of go from this kind of comforting touch to segue into, so it seems like there are a lot of kind of fears of men having BDSM fantasies where they're beating up a gynoid that will somehow translate into sexual violence against women, or not even using it as a BDSM fantasy, just kind of this sexual desire to hurt. But I'm curious, like robotic ethics wise, if we have... Somebody who is on the the more pain bottom, submissive side of that, that wants to be harmed by their robot, can you make a robot that can safely hit somebody?
1: conceptually you absolutely could technically it might be a lot more difficult um there was actually an article on this recently where some people had had volunteered information about this, some people working in the field had talked about it oh my God. um please send that most, to me i will yeah absolutely it was really interesting because you know there's a lot of talk about People were saying, oh, well, that means you're not consenting to your robot having other people were trying to explain, though. Well, actually, there's so much consent in BDSM that you know, you I think that someone somewhere got the wrong end of the stick about what it all meant, but um, <laughs> I think you know, <laughs> the idea of the violence in the robot just to come back to that, there was a story during the rounds about a year ago about a, a sex robot being molested on a, in a trade show floor, and you know, that story is so far from what actually happened when I went to look into it. So, what happened was. There's a researcher who builds sex robots, him and his wife make them in sort of basically in our garage, they, they build it, they get a sex doll, they put in sensors, and they are much more interested in the AI than in the body. And he'd taken this doll, this, this sort of robot to um, a show, and it was on the floor, exhibition floor. And he'd said to people, you know, yeah, yeah, you can touch it, that's fine. So people, of course, given an invitation to touch something that they've not experienced before, they're going to go and grab it, you know, touch it, squeeze it, hold it. And so they did. And so there was damage. There was wear and tear. He says himself, you know, it's nothing that he couldn't fix. It's just that people didn't know how to go and touch a fragile object like that. But he got spun out of control. I think part of it was a a language barrier and that the reporter, neither the reporter, he talked each other's language. So there was a lot of to and fro. And I think what came across was the reporter was saying, He says they damaged his doll and they groped it. And he was saying they damaged the doll but they didn't know how to handle it. And I think it all got sort of construed into the story about sex robot is molested and sexually assaulted at a show. And it's just not what happened. And I keep hearing that from people. Oh, did you hear about that robot that was, you know, raped on a trade show floor? And I'm like, Oh my goodness happened you know it it's really like, off the rails yeah yeah completely different from what happened but um, yeah when there's so this, something
2: new that's squishy too you're going to see how far it squishes like this is why you put things behind glass at museums but yeah i think the flip side of it is is more interesting how to kind of build a robot that knows the limits of the person and flesh <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's the thing. So that we have there's a problem with robots and and human flesh. They're not very gentle, and um, this is why the care robots have never particularly taken off or been deployed because there's, there are examples of care robots in Japan, like Robear, which is um, a robot that could lift people and carry them around the place. And they had to stop those trials because Robear just couldn't handle real human skin. And so you know, these are kind of really not beneficial to someone to get hurt by a robot especially when they don't want to be hurt by the robots. so yeah we're not good enough at making robots that know the limits of what people can and can't tolerate the touch sensitivity and things like that but conceptually it would be possible yeah
2: is there one thing that you really want our listeners to kind of take away from this conversation who may not have like dived into it or be like as obsessed with sex bots as we are
1: Yes. It is such a niche area. It's more niche than you would think. It's really appealing to a very small market. I don't think it will ever be mainstream. It doesn't stop it being interesting. And there's certainly things we need to learn to take it broader into understanding technology and pleasure and intimacy. But it is so overblown by the media. There's so much hype compared to what the reality is. And I think we need to be really careful to keep it in perspective. All right. Thank you so much. Thank yes, you so much for talking to us. <laughs> uh, so, where can people find you on the internet? I am very active on Twitter. I tweeted at Dr. Kate Devlin, and I've got a, a website up there somewhere too, the same com. Great. And so,
2: you can find me on Twitter at uh, Karen, U H K A R E N. And I'm
0: at Miss Cherry Pie, P I Like The Number Pie. And thank you again so much for responding to our Twitter DM.
2: I like, thank yeah, like we are like the masters of Twitter pictures. So
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, thanks again. I could talk about this forever.
1: <laughs> thank you very much. Hi. Hi.
2: It's Caitlin Brodnick. And Sue Smith. And we have a new podcast called Scam, Scam wow. wow. The podcast about scams. We love scams. If you think about it, Everything's a freaking scam. Honestly, America's a scam. America is a scam, but it's not about politics. Don't worry. No, 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 no. We hate politics, but we love con artists. We love. Swindlers. Yes, criminals. Nice criminals. Multi level marketing. Yeah, you could call them like powerful women or you could call them like swindlers. Correct. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, listen to our new podcast, Scam Wow, on Apple Podcasts. Wherever podcasts are sold or listened to, we're free. Yeah. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feministcoffeehour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon of Feminist Coffee Hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.